We're in chapter 4 of Paul's letter to Ephesians again today, and last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 4. We looked at verses 1 through 6, where the Apostle Paul was urging us as Christians to maintain our unity, that we have so very much in common as Christians, and we need to cultivate attitudes that promote this unity that we have instead of pulling apart from one another over smaller differences. But today we get to see kind of the point of unity, that we are not simply to be united for the sake of unity, it's nice to be united, but this unity is to be put in action, that there is a purpose to this unity. And that's what we see in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Okay, great, the church is united, now what? What does a united church do? So if you would turn in your Bibles, we're looking at Ephesians 4, it's page 1161 in the Pew Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things." And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, we give thanks for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us directionless, that you do not leave us in silence, but that you, O oh God, are a God who speaks a God who reveals yourself to your people. And we thank you for preserving the scriptures for us that we might know you through them. And so, Lord, open our hearts and minds today to hear your word, to hear these scriptures, and use me to proclaim your word. Use me in spite of my sin, my weakness, and the ways in which I go astray to proclaim your truth that we would receive it, O oh God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we're looking here at unity, and we see in the passage that a big part of this unity in action is the giving of gifts. And we're getting close to Christmas, and so we might be thinking a little bit about gifts and what to get. And, but these are not things that were on sale for Black Friday. These are spiritual gifts that are given by Jesus Christ to the church to put our unity in action. And so what I want us to see here is we are shown very clearly where these gifts come from, what is their source, what we are to do with these gifts, what is the proper use of them, and finally, what is the goal? If we all have these gifts and we're using them, what are we working towards? In the same way that a football team has different players doing different jobs, they are working towards the same goal of winning the game. So we see here at the beginning in verse 7, Paul shows us the source where our gifts come from. He says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace is that favor or blessing of God that he pours out on us, though we don't deserve it. And yes, we are saved by grace, but Paul here is not thinking of saving grace, but the gracious gifts that Jesus gives to his people. They are gifts that help us to serve the church. We saw in our New Testament reading from Romans 12, a number of these gifts were mentioned, and Paul is thinking of those things here. And so we are given some information about these gifts to help us understand the source of our gifts and why that is so important. So I want to highlight three quick things here. First, he says, Christians are not without a God-given gift. In other words, every Christian has one. Paul says this, grace was given to each one of us. He doesn't say that only some Christians received gifts. We all have. Some of us may think that we have nothing to offer. We may feel unremarkable, but that's not true. Jesus has graciously given gifts to every Christian through the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean we're all going to be the greatest at something? Not necessarily, but it means we all have a gift that is useful for serving. Our gifts may be different, but we are united by the fact that Christ gives each one of his people a gift. Second, we should not question Christ's distribution of gifts, saying, how come he got that and I got this? Paul says that these gifts were given according to the measure of Christ, that Jesus himself measured out the gifts he gave. And I don't want us to question the perfect wisdom of Jesus Christ in those decisions. He gave us different gifts in different proportions because that was his choice. And so we may be different because God has gifted us differently, but we are all united by the fact that Christ thought, yes, this is what I want to give to you. He has said that to each Christian. And third, each of these gifts, if they come from Jesus, are a taste of heavenly riches. We may not think that spiritual gifts are nearly as exciting as a big flat screen TV that was on sale for Black Friday or one of those weird self-moving robot vacuum things that I feel like would break instantaneously in our house. We may not like the idea of spiritual gifts, but in verses 8 through 10, Paul is trying to show us that these gifts are treasure. He quotes Psalm 68 in a kind of confusing way, but he's using the image here of a conqueror 
who has come down and gone out into battle, and he has won the battle, and he is returning with the spoils of war to his city, ascending up to the hill where Jerusalem was. And the idea is that Jesus descended from heaven at Christmas to achieve his victory. And when he ascended, he arose victorious to heaven. And from there, he can dispense heavenly gifts to his people. And so each of our spiritual gifts is given out of the storehouses of heaven, that Christ is excited to share the spoils of his victory with his people. And so if that is true, if our gifts are truly spiritual gifts that we have been given, then they are neither small nor unimportant. They are the very riches of heaven given to us in the measure of Christ. And so we know our gifts come from him. That's what Paul is telling us here. But he doesn't just want us to know like, oh, made in China, made in heaven on our gifts. He is not merely concerned with us knowing where they come from. He wants us to know what to do with them. What is the proper use of our gifts? And to do that, he points our attention to a few of the gifts. In verse 11, he says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... Now, one of the first things you need to note when you see those five things mentioned is that these are not the only gifts. You can see in Romans 12, a number of other gifts are mentioned like generosity, mercy, leadership, and those aren't mentioned here. So he's only mentioning some of them. And then you have to ask, well, why these? Well, when you try to compare those five gifts, they are all word-based gifts. Each of those giftings has a teaching function where those people instruct and exhort believers. They require someone to bring the word of God to God's people. Now, some of those offices, like the apostles and prophets, no longer exist today. That those were for a special time of the church when God was still revealing what we have in the Bible, and they spoke or wrote what we have in Scripture. We saw back in Ephesians 2.20 that the foundation of the church is built on top of the apostles and prophets, that they, you can't go back under and add to the foundation. We can't say, oh, this person over here is an apostle. Let's squeeze them under the foundation. They are done. But these other gifts still exist today. Evangelists are people like church planters or missionaries who intentionally go out where people don't know Jesus to make them know about this Jesus guy. Shepherds are pastors who preach the word to God's people and make them know what it means for their lives. Similarly, teachers are those who may teach at seminary, at Sunday school, or write curriculum that we use in our classes. And so Paul is showing us that these gifts have a word-based function. Okay, So what's so great about the fact that these people teach? Well, they have a purpose when it comes to our gifts and their proper use. He says, Christ gave these gifts, these five things, to equip the saints for ministry. That those who bring the word should equip people to do ministry. In other words, pastors and other teachers are not responsible to do all the ministry, but for helping others to know how to use their gifts for ministry. Our culture has become 
increasingly consumer-focused because we have so many options. So what do you want to watch tonight? Well, I don't know. We could watch one of the 2,000 cable channels we have, or Netflix, or Hulu, or Vudu, or this, or that, or this, or that. And we just go through all the options. We have so many options. And this has impacted churches as well. That people will often attend churches where they can receive the most services, where staff can meet their needs. And if you want to take a really unflattering look at this mentality towards churches, it is that people view them like a spa, that we go to church to feel better, to get well for our own sakes, to take time for me and making me feel better. We go to be served rather than to be equipped to serve. But Paul says that every Christian has been given a gift to serve the church, and that pastors should equip their people for those gifts. And so instead of thinking of church as a spa, R.C. Sproul, a theologian, says, think of it like an army hospital in wartime, an army hospital, that churches help us with our problems and hurts because we are hurting, and we do have problems in need of healing, but we are not looking for healing in the form of spiritual pampering, but in spiritual surgery to get us back to the front to serve others. Unfortunately, in too many instances, congregations have relied on pastors and other leaders to do the work for them, seeking a masseuse instead of a medic. It's much easier to be served than it is to serve. This, unfortunately, though, is one of those boomerang passages that people get to stand up here and we throw this out at you guys and it comes back and smacks us right in the face. Because pastors and leaders can be equally guilty of pridefully refusing to delegate, keeping important tasks to themselves without wanting to equip other people to serve in places they are gifted to do so. So what does it mean then to be equipped for ministry? Is there a ministry tool belt like Batman has that somehow he has a gadget for every possible situation? What does it mean to be equipped well, one way we can think about it is using an image Paul mentions later, and that is of joints holding together the different parts of our body, that you can think about being equipped for ministry in the same way that we use and learn to use our body in the right way. First, you need to learn what the healthy uses of your body are, that your arms and legs, don't know if you know this, are meant to bend certain ways and not other ways. And so if you start going, huh, I wonder if I can get that elbow to go back this way. It's not going to work. If we start trying to figure out all these different ways we can bend, I am incredibly unflexible. Like touching my toes doesn't happen. Apparently some people can do it, but sometimes we don't know what our bodies are supposed to do. We need to know the healthy use of our body parts. Similarly, if we are given gifts as part of the body, we need to know how to use them, how not to use them. Romans 12 talked about leading with zeal, okay? But we need to know that there is some kind of leading with zeal that is wrong, and there is some kind of leading with zeal that is good. 
Just because someone is passionate as a leader does not mean that he or she should be followed. There are right ways and wrong ways to lead. And the same goes for other gifts, that we need to be equipped in learning the right ways to use our gifts. And so pastors and other teachers and the Word helps equip us in that way to use our gifts rightly. So first, we need to know what the healthy use is. But second, we need to know the full range of motion of our body. That if you only ever use your body parts in one direction, like you only turn your head one way, you're missing out. There's a whole other side of the world over here on this side of your head. If you only ever bend at your knees, but you don't bend at the waist, your body's going to suffer from that. Your body's going to suffer from not being used in the fullness of the motion. So similarly, we are equipped in considering the wide range, the full range of motion of different gifts we may have. Hospitality is a gift that's mentioned in Scripture. Oftentimes, we think of hospitality and we think specifically of, well, that means I have to have people into my house. And yeah, that's part of hospitality. But what about helping people in their own homes, being hospitable at their house? What about making people feel welcome at church gatherings, whether it's at worship or a Bible study or any time when we gather together in the church. Are those not expressions of hospitality? Does that not express the full range of motion? And so to be equipped for ministry is to consider what exactly does all this mean? How far do these joints move and what directions can they move for me to fulfill these gifts? What part of the back can I scratch as opposed to what I can't scratch? So when every member of the body is equipped to function as Christ has gifted us, using our gifts correctly and in the full range of motion, we are strengthened. We are strengthened and stronger as a body when we know how to use our gifts. If we didn't know how to use our bodies, we'd be like those puppies that you see, and their legs and feet have grown so much, but they just can't run. They just have to do the whole, looks like a cloud of dust cartoon running. They can't fully use their body. But as we understand and are equipped with our gifts, the body becomes strong. But strong for what? To be a bodybuilder, to say, whoa, we got a strong, united body. What is the goal of being equipped for ministry? Paul tells us. So to equip the saints for ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We want the body to be built up, to built up to be united in Christ, that we know Jesus. We saw that last week. Here are all the things we have in common. The body is only united if all the parts are working in a coordinated way, that we must be united under some head that directs the body. And as body parts, we need to know who this head is. The head is not the pastor, who's simply one part of the body who helps equip other parts of the body. The head of the church body is not our favorite author 
whether he's a really good old author like John Calvin or a contemporary author you can find at the Christian bookstore, John Piper or someone like him. The head of the body is not our own heart or our own head, that we don't follow just what we want to do. Jesus Christ is the head of the body of the church. And if he is the head, then he is the one who directs the body. And if we are not following his direction, then the body will be out of sorts. It will be disordered and disunited. I mean, just imagine if you were trying to live your life and a few parts of your body just were out of your control, just like did whatever they wanted to do. You didn't tell them when to do it or when not to do it. They just kind of acted up. That would be really hard to go through life if parts of the body were just doing whatever it is they wanted to do. And so Paul warns us that this is possible, that the body can be disunited. He says this, that we are to do these things so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. One of the great enemies of the church described in the New Testament is false teaching. And the most dangerous kind of false teaching is not the most obvious false teaching. It can be really easy to identify false teaching when it's obvious. If someone comes to you and says, well, the Bible's not the Word of God. It's just some book written years and years ago. Okay, ding, 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 got that one. Jesus is not the Son of God. He's just a really good teacher. Oh, that, got that one. God promises that you will have great health and lots of wealth all the days of your life. Yeah, that doesn't pass the sniff test either. The most dangerous kind of false teaching is cunning. It's deceptive. And so we need to be able to differentiate between what is right and what is almost right right. Paul helps us to think about this in terms of children. Children are naive, and children need to learn not to trust strangers that seem well-intentioned. Children don't need a lot of help to trust the really scary-looking stranger. They know, yep, that one, mm -mm, nope, not trusting him, but the one who seems really nice. The one who gives them things, the one who seems sweet and helpful, children are naive enough to trust them. He warns us as Christians to mature in our faith in such a way that we can know the difference between right and almost right, that we have listened to the word through the Bible, through our pastors and teachers as they rightly teach the word so that Jesus is directing us as our head. He knows that this is going to be hard to do. And so he is providing in some built-in ways to help the body. Here's what Paul says next. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I would love to give you a happy story about this verse. I can't. Because this phrase, to speak the truth in love, is said by a lot of Christians, and it is far easier said than done. 
Usually, if we go up to someone and say, I need to speak the truth and love to you, it's, you really annoy me, and I need to tell you, but I need to find a way to say it nicely. That's usually the way we think of it, and yet Paul here is thinking of it in terms of the church and effectively serving one another. And I think a, a relatively helpful image is the idea of popping a dislocated shoulder back into place. I played volleyball in college, and I had this teammate who... His shoulder that he hit with was a little loose, and usually once a month, he would swing, and then his arm would just hang there. And he really couldn't play very well when his arm was hanging there and dislocated, and so he'd go over to a wall, because this has happened enough times, just pop it back in. He's just, <gasps> and it hurts, and you can see the hurt on his face, but then he was ready to go. He was fine. He was back in it. Speaking the truth in love hurts. It's identifying something is out of sorts. And we need to get back in line in the direction of the head, Jesus Christ, so that you are working together with the body. It hurts, but it brings us into unity. And when it's done, it feels better afterwards. Maybe not immediately afterwards. He did seem to wince a lot. Maybe it takes a little bit of time. But speaking the truth in love is bringing us back in line with the head. Because all it takes is one of our body parts having a problem and the rest of the body suffers. I mean, how many people have had a migraine and the rest of your body just goes done, it's done? Or a bad back or a busted foot? For some people I know, it might even be a paper clip or a hangnail or a paper cut or a hangnail. That's all it takes. And it just, it's over completely over. The body of Christ can be like that too. That if we are naive enough to believe wrong things about what we are to do in the church, the whole body can suffer. Like Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan in the garden, we can believe wrong things about how we are to exist and what we are to do as members of the body. Some of us may fall victim to pride proudly thinking that our gifts are important, that I'm a leader, I'm a teacher, I, I give more money than other people, whatever it may be, we can fall victim to pride with our gifts. But if you look at your body, almost every single part of your body needs the rest of your body to exist. As super strong as a Major League Baseball pitcher's arm is, Without his legs, he can't pitch, can't pitch well. We need the rest of the body. There can be no pride in our gifts. Maybe it's not pride. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it is an unwillingness to discover or use our gifts once discovered. We could be timid about our abilities, not sure what we're good at. But if we take a body part and just lay it on a table and say, huh, I wonder when it's going to show me what it's good at. It's probably going to have a hard time showing you what it's good at. But in using and trying different uses, we begin to learn what we can do. In the same way that we learned that the elbow doesn't bend this way, but it's really good at bending this way. We start to see what we can do that we need the gifts in the church, that if one day our ankle or our liver or some part of our body stopped working, the rest of the body would suffer. We need everyone. We need everyone for the body to work. 
Some of us may fall into the problem of overtaxing certain members, asking certain members of the body to do more work than others. And you end up with a body that looks like a professional arm wrestler. And you've got this giant hulking beast of an arm over here and some scrawny little thing hanging over on this side. That's not the image of a healthy body. No offense to professional arm wrestlers in our midst today. Sometimes we can disagree simply over the direction of what the body should do. That if we are a runner and our two legs want to go different directions, you're going to be a pretty terrible runner. That the body needs to be united to the one head that directs us. I think this passage, if nothing else, it gives us reason to give thanks that each of our body parts does not have its own mind and desires. It's really nice that my fingers aren't like, man, I really want to just do this today. But thankfully, our body, for the most part, listens to what our mind says. In the church, unfortunately, the members of the body are people like you and me who have minds, who have desires. And because of the fall, we have sinful desires. And so we don't always want to listen to Christ as the head of the body. We'd rather break off and try and be our own body. Or we'd rather try and take over and behead ourselves. And so we need brothers and sisters to bring us back like that popped shoulder, popping back in place. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus saves us. That Jesus, in those verses Paul quoted, he's described as this conquering hero. It says, he led a host of captives Back Was that not us, that we were captive in sin? We were the enemies, the rebels of God, and yet he came and won his victory but did not wipe us out but brought us with him home, welcoming him into his people. He has made us part of the body of Christ. He has given us gifts, poured out his spirit in us so that we now have value in his eyes, that we are an integral part of the body of Christ. If you don't believe me, remember that Jesus himself selected 12 disciples. You guys do some of this work. He commissioned others that we read of the 72 going out and serving. He valued their contributions, even though he was the son of God, able to do far more than any mere mortal. So Christians know that if you have been saved by Christ, you have been given a gift You may not know what it is. You may be really confused. What is he talking about with gifts? It would be nice if we could just like look on the bottom of your foot and it said, oh, prayer, great. But we help learn our gifts through trial and error, through one another in the body, encouraging others, saying, you're doing great at this. Or, this might be a better idea for you. And we help We help one another that we can grow up as the body in love and serve together as God's people. That is Christ's prayer. That is Paul's prayer for the church, that we would be his body working together in love. And may it be true of us through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we give thanks for this day and we thank you that you have blessed us so richly. That you, O God, out of your heavenly riches have bestowed upon us gifts by your grace. That you have made it possible for us to help others in different ways. Help us, O God, to discover those. 
Maybe it's through taking some kind of self-assessment. Maybe it's through reading books. Maybe it's through talking with other Christians. Help us, O oh Lord, to know how to serve. Lord, we ask for your guidance. We ask for your strength. We seek to help and be part of the united body of Christ here to do your work. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.